doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. Welcome to Michael Myers Minute, where I delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Before we get into Minute 89, you must know that in the novelization, Loomis does not notice that Michael is gone while looking down from the balcony slash broken window. Quote, He walked to the shattered windows and peered down. It lay on its back amid a thousand shards of broken glass that twinkled in the moonlight like horror frost. The front of the uniform stolen from the truck driver glistened blackly with blood that seeped out of the tremendous rents in his flesh caused by Loomis's magnum. Nitpick from a while back. Loomis doesn't carry a magnum. He carries a Smith & Wesson Model 15 Combat Masterpiece 38. One of its eyes gazed stupidly up to the sky. Where the other had been was a black hole caked with clotted blood and jellied aqueous humor. Loomis stared at the corpse a long time, watching for a sign of life. Detecting none, he turned back into the bedroom and reached into his trench coat pocket. What are you doing? the girl asked. Reloading, he said pushing the long, heavy cartridges into the chamber of his gun. Why? Loomis shrugged. It heightens my sense of security, he said with an irony that was lost on her. He started down the steps. Where are you going? To examine the body. I would like you to go across the street and wait for the police. No, said Lori. I think I'd like to come with you. Loomis looked at her quizzically. You haven't had enough for one night? I want to make sure it's over. Suit yourself. I assure you it is. Which is why you're reloading your gun, Loomis said to himself, heading downstairs. From the way the girl clutched his arm, he knew she was thinking the same thing. Poor child. If she knew what he knew, she'd be thinking darker thoughts than that, even. She'd be thinking about the dream that little Michael, angelic choir boy face turned to the ceiling as if in prayer, had told him some fifteen years ago. A dream about his vengeance on a druid girl who had not returned his love and on her lover who had mocked him. A dream about a ceremony on an accursed gravesite, where his head and heart were left exposed to the elements to rot, while some shaman recited an awful curse dooming him to roam the earth forever lusting for blood. She'd be thinking about Michael's great-grandfather, who had been tortured by that identical dream, a dream that had inflamed both of them to commit deeds of wanton horror. She'd be thinking about the voices that spoke both to Michael and to his great-grandfather, urging them to take revenge against someone who had lived over a thousand years ago. She'd be thinking about a festival called Samhain, whose grotesque rituals designed to protect druid harvests against the depredations of howling demons had been transformed over a millennium or more into the harmless holiday called Halloween. Halloween. Charming children in cute costumes begging sweets. Cardboard cutouts of skeletons and witches on brooms. Warmly glowing jack-o'-lanterns, artless parties, and entertaining games. Spooky movies on TV, innocent pranks, trick-or-treat. End quote. Minute 89 opens on Lori sobbing. Though she shouldn't be sitting anywhere that she can currently see Dr. Loomis, she knows what he knows, what we know. The shape has gotten up and walked away. Four confirmed hits in the script, six apparent hits in the film, maybe a miraculous seventh shot in Halloween 2, yet the shape still walks. This, more than anything else here, is the franchise-making moment. I'm already getting into the second film because it overlaps the end of this one, 
The third will be an unrelated tangent, better in concept than execution. In the fourth, a decade after his first escape, Michael will escape again from Smith's Grove to go after Laurie's orphan daughter. That film will end with Jamie attacking her own mother, seemingly possessed by whatever spirit has been driving Michael. We, of course, know what spirit has been driving Michael. Minute three, I read to you the prologue from the novelization, the Celtic boy Enda, driven by jealousy to murder, condemned to death and cursed. Maybe I'll add it to the end of this episode as well, with the audio fixed, so you don't have to go back to a episode that doesn't sound that great. I think, in passing, with one guest or another, I may have mentioned a segment from the Chaos Comics Halloween. Tommy Doyle, much as he already has in Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, obsesses over this thing that brought its violence so close to him all those years before, and then again more recently. He finds the retired Lee Brackett burying the body of Richie Castle in a pumpkin patch five miles out of town. Brackett mistook Richie for Myers and shot him. Tommy has a gun on Brackett as this exchange begins. Tommy, you knew, didn't you? You always knew more than you let on to, Brackett. Brackett. Oh, I know things, kid. I know things that have been eating me up inside for years. It isn't just the Myers family who are cursed. This whole town's cursed. Now, you going to keep pointing that gun at me, or are you going to help? Tommy. Tell me everything. Then maybe I'll help. We cut away to Lonnie Elam, getting ready to burn down the Myers house, as Richie was going to when Brackett happened upon him. Then we come in on Brackett's story. Brackett. Haddonfield was one of the earliest towns founded in the Midwest. The name is derived from Hayden, meaning cursed. The devout Protestants who escaped religious persecution in England weren't the only ones. We see a priest on a front porch of his church, followers gathered around. Brackett. Some of those. Contemporaries of the infamous Cotton Mather. Brackett doesn't explain, but I will. Cotton Mather's work, Memorable Providences, which detailed the afflictions of several children in Salem, Massachusetts, led by just a few steps to what we know as the Salem Witch Trials. But back to Brackett, where behind their pious pilgrim faces actually worshippers of a far older religion. Druids. Next panel, a priest setting a woman alight on a stake, setting the torch directly to her head, which doesn't seem like the way anyone did it. Brackett. During the New England Witch Trials, a group of clandestine druids led by one Murphy Myers headed west, fearing for their lives. Next panel. A hooded figure holds a newborn baby aloft, the full moon in the background, a few other hooded figures standing nearby. Bracket. Myers was the direct descendant of a cursed bloodline. The curse of Samhain was placed upon one of Myers' descendants. Pretty sure the writer means ancestors here. Nearly 2,000 years ago, that ancestor, as you all heard in minute three, was Enda. Bracket. Every generation of Myers was cursed. While the women folk were touched with visions and sometimes the ability to read minds, the firstborn male of each generation carried the seed of Salon's evil. Cut away from this story to Michael killing Lonnie. And then back to Brackett and Tommy. Tommy still has his gun up, but not pointed at Brackett. Brackett still has his shovel. Richie lies in the foreground, a bloody hole in his forehead. Tommy, how do you know all this? You're part of it. You're part of the cult like Mrs. Blankenship, Michael's babysitter. Brackett, no. Most of Haddonfield's leading townspeople are direct descendants of those founding Druid fathers, but not as Brackett's. My grandfather moved to Haddonfield in 1901. Close on Tommy. Tommy, so how do you know all this? Brackett, I was a cop, remember? Cops investigate. 
And then we return to hooded figures, maybe in that same pumpkin patch. And there's a car parked nearby as they watch a different victim burn on the stake. Bracket. In order to appease the gods, the druid priests held fire rituals. Prisoners of war, criminals, the insane, were burned alive. By observing the way they died, they believed they could see omens of the future. Close on the victim, mouth wide, screaming, everything a shade of orange as he burns. Bracket. Michael was never meant to live. For three generations, the Myers family had been blessed with peace. None had killed. I gotta interrupt because the script and novelization for the original film contradict this generation count. I talked about it in minute 37. Brackett tells Loomis about Michael's great-grandfather. The novelization says it was on his mother's side, but that doesn't fit this curse. Killed a couple dancing at the Harvest Dance, Halloween 1898 or 99. Michael's great-grandfather is not three generations of peace. It's one. Because his grandfather killed someone. Father. Michael. Back to Brackett. But that night, Halloween 1957, they knew the evil had returned stronger than ever. Interrupting again because by the time this comic was written, Michael's birthday had already been established as October 19. But maybe that date was there on his birth certificate to protect him. You know? Next panel. Audrey Myers, a.k.a. Edith Myers, giving birth, her legs bare, a doctor between them. Bracket. Audrey Myers was tortured by an agonizing three-day labor. Michael was born at 11.57 p.m. that night. He was the first of the cursed Myers offspring to be born on that day, as if the curse was waiting for a vessel to carry the ultimate evil. Next panel, a robed figure, but with a hat resembling that of the doctor in the prior panel, holding a bundled thing, presumably a baby, in front of a raging furnace. Bracket. Michael's body may have entered the world that night, but his soul did not. He was stillborn. But that soul, that black-hearted soul, did arrive as night became day, the day of the dead. Final image on the page, a doctor, whose gown definitely looks more like the druidic robes than anything from a hospital, holds the bundled newborn. Bracket. He was officially pronounced alive at 12.06 a.m., and the curse was fulfilled. But that never happened, did it? Nor did Halloween 6, or 5, or 4. I've already been getting into Halloween 2's opening minutes because of the overlap, but those are no longer canon either. There is just this film and the latest one. Laurie sobs. Second three angle on Loomis, and now he looks up as he does in the script. But we don't get that. Loomis's POV. The backyard. The neighboring yards. The street are all empty, quiet, dark. There is only the sound of the wind swelling in the trees. Halloween 2, minute 4, second 5. We've cut from Laurie to Loomis rushing outside. From the script. He is Mephistophelian figure in a goatee, bald head, and trench coat fluttering in the wind. He carries a three fifty seven Magnum revolver. His eyes are blazing. On Loomis, panaglide. Loomis races off the porch and around the side of the house, past bushes, past a flowered trellis, into the backyard. Despite the Halloween 2 retcon of Michael falling into the front yard, the script says it is the backyard, which is empty. Loomis bends down over a flattened patch of grass, close on grass. Loomis's fingers search the grass, they touch something. He holds up his fingers. The tips are covered with blood. In the novelization of Halloween 2, he sees the lawn, which was empty. He slapped the wall with his hand. 
turned, grabbed the gun, and staggered down the stairs, out the door, into the yard, a patch of flattened wet grass which still had the outline of a body. It looked as if it had been burned into the ground. He reached out, feeling the compressed blades of grass against his skin. The grass was smooth when he rubbed it in one direction, rough the other. It was wetter in the center. Very wet. Wet with blood. And we'll come back to this version of this moment next minute. In the novelization of this original film, Laurie goes outside with Loomis. Quote, Loomis exited into the cool night air and rounded the side of the house trailed by Laurie. Cautiously, he prowled toward the backyard, the moonlight glinting on the blue barrel of his gun. One more corner to turn, Loomis stuck his head slowly around it and focused his eyes on the place where the body had landed beneath the French windows. It was gone. He rushed to the spot, suppressing a sob of frustration, a patch of flattened grass surrounded by twinkling shards of glass. No other sign. Not even blood. Above the thudding of his heart, he heard the girl whimper behind him. He turned and put his hand under her arm to support her. Mutely, they stared at the patch of grass. Until this moment, he had hoped against hope that the entity he had pursued to this place was a thing of flesh and blood like himself, though deep in his heart he had known it would be otherwise. The evidence pointed not merely to another interpretation, but, as he had said to Sheriff Brackett, to another dimension. He shuddered, wondering what little boy at this very moment was tossing in his sleep, tortured by a dream of tragic love that had occurred far away and long ago, tormented by a voice commanding the dreamer to take revenge. Lori's nails dug into his shoulder as she stared like a soldier in shell-shock at the empty place on the lawn. It was the boogeyman, wasn't it? she murmured. As a matter of fact, Lewis replied, it was. End quote. And end novel, actually. The novelization ends with that line. In the film, Loomis looks across the rooftops, but we stay on him. He knows there is more to come. We know there is more to come. Since this is 1978 and sequels are not such a readily acceptable thing as today, no one actually thinks there will be more to come. Instead, a second ten, we start a montage of empty locations we've seen before. Michael's disappearance is not a cue for a sequel, but a trigger for a thought, or series of thoughts, about how danger is out there, evil is out there. If you're young like I was when you first see this film, Michael is out there. He's behind a tree in South Pasadena. He's in a dark alleyway. He's anywhere and everywhere because the specificity of Michael Myers is not yet the point. This is not a slasher film just yet. This is not a franchise. It is a thriller that evokes a sense of a dangerous world and the need to be attentive. Whether you are charged with babysitting, whether you are a parent, whether you are a doctor caring for your patient, an administrator listening to that doctor, a lone mechanic driving home and thinking of your dead wife, a teenager, a child, an adult, alone, or with others, you must be wary. Because the wind blows, the world turns, and evil is out there. But how about that montage before we go? Second ten, the upstairs landing in the Doyle house, lit from below. As this shot lingers, we should realize that we can hear Michael breathing. But he isn't in this shot. Or is he? Our mind wonders. And we look for him. Second fourteen, the living room couch. Lori's bag by the footstool. The knife she threw away on the floor nearby. I don't know if there's an IMDb goof for the knife, but I've heard many a time about how there's a knife in this shot when, duh, Michael already took it. Because Michael can only have one knife, of course. 
Never mind that the common take is that he robbed the hardware store and Brackett told us in minute 33 that a couple of knives were stolen. If there was an IMDb goof for that one, I never even copied and pasted it into my notes. Second 18, the entryway of the Wallace house. Angled so that we cannot quite see into the living room. We cannot see the door. But if we know the internal geography, the bottom of the stairs are just through that doorway and to the right. I've always thought of this montage as places Michael has been. But this one is not really a place that we've seen it. This is approximately where he was standing in minute 61 when he was watching Linda and Bob on the couch, but this is not that angle. Instead, this time, after slowing this movie down for this movies by minutes format, this feels like places Laurie has been instead. Places we have been. Second 21, the angle up the Wallace stairs, where Michael stood but where Laurie landed, where surely we yelled at the screen for her to get up, run. Second 26, and I'm wondering how they decided how long to linger on each of these shots because they are not getting progressively shorter like a countdown or progressively longer, and they are not equal. The Doyle House. Angled as we last saw it, minute 87, when Tommy and Lindsay ran away and Loomis arrived. The front door is open. The location has not been reset. Second 31, the Wallace House. And we've got an IMDb goof. At around 1 hour 28 minutes in the shot facing the Wallace House, the film's conclusion, if you look very closely, you can just see what could be a crewman moving in the darkness on the left of the screen. First of all, what could be a crewman? That's lazy writing. But in answer to it, nope. Or maybe. Or it's leaves. Or it's dark. Get over yourself, penultimate Halloween IMDb goof writer. Unless you see a crew member there in the dark holding a Halloween the motion picture slate, it is not a goof. It's just a barely interesting tidbit. People exist. Sometimes they even do things at night. Second 34, the Myers house. And Michael's gotta be in the shot, right? We want him to be in the shot. We want to know where he is, but we don't get to. That isn't the point of John Carpenter's Halloween. The script says fade to black, but instead, second 42, we cut to black. Roll end titles. Orange on black. Halloween. And we get our principal actors. Loomis, Donald Pleasant. Lori, Jamie Lee Curtis. Annie, Nancy Loomis. Linda, PJ Souls. Racket, Charles Cyphers. Lindsay, Kyle Richards. Tommy, Brian Andrews. Bob, John Michael Graham. Marion, Nancy Stevens. Graveyard Keeper, Arthur Mallet, And the minute ends. That is all for Minute 89. Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. Stalk me on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute or Instagram Michael Myers Minute. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a nice review if you like what you hear. Until next time. See you later. Bye. Bye.
The horror started on the eve of South, in the foggy veil in Northern Ireland at the dawn of the Celtic race. And once started, it trod the earth forevermore, wreaking its savagery suddenly, swiftly, with incredible ferocity. Then, its lust sated, it shrank back into the mists of time for a year, a decade, a generation perhaps. But it slept only and did not die, for it could not be killed. And on the eve before Samhain it would stir, and if the lust were powerful enough, it would rise to fulfill the curse invoked so many Samhains before. Then the people would bolt their doors. Scant good it did them, for the thing laughed at locks and bolts, and besides, there were the unwary, always the unwary. Samhain, the Druid Festival of the Dead. The summer had passed, and so too had that outburst of early fall warmth now known as Indian Summer. The green had gone out of the land, the crops harvested, and the chill of winter descended like an angel of death. The people, fearing the sun might never again warm the land, held their festival to appease Mukwala, their deity. On hillsides and in the caves and daub and wattle huts, great fires were lit, to which the spirits of the departed were invited by their kinsmen to warm themselves, to be cheerful, before the snows blanketed the earth. Drew a priest divined who would live and die in the coming year, who would marry, bear children, wax rich, enjoy good health, and they attempted to hold at bay through sacrifices and other rites to witches and goblins that ran amuck at the time, stealing infants, destroying crops, killing farm animals, and sometimes worse. Deirdre was the third and youngest daughter of the Druid king, Gwynwil. Her hair was sandy brown with amber highlights, her eyes sea green, her complexion cream and wild rose. She was already told that her older sisters and her early development had been the cause of much concern in the tribal community. The other virgins tittered with envy. The married women voiced disapproval and counseled her mother to marry her off before the girl yielded to her budding impulses. The young warriors eyed her yearningly, and the old warriors thought forbidden thoughts and reflected on their faded memories. His name was Enda. He was fifteen, and he loved Deirdre with the secret passion that tortured him and at night caused him to cry out in his sleep. When it became rumored that Deirdre's father, the king, was preparing to offer her hand in marriage, Enda consulted his kinsmen and asked if they thought his suit would be looked upon in favor. He suspected what the answer would be, but his longing overcame his embarrassment. Oh, Deirdre marry you, his father cackled, with your shriveled arm and your twitching mouth. For Enda had presented himself wrong end first when his mother birthed him, and the midwives had made a botch of his delivery. She would as soon marry my goat, howled his uncle. Wabulik, his brother added, pointing to the runty dog worrying a greasy bone in the corner of their hut. Besides, said his father, I'm told she's but betrothed to Kulain. Now there's a lad worthy of that wench's pretty hole, his uncle burst out, raising his wine skin to his fat lips, and they continued to discuss Deidre's charms as Enda retreated miserably from the hut into the cold night. The boy suffered tortures such as only the adolescent can. At length, he determined on a plan. If he could somehow get directly to Deirdre, he would convince her that though he was ill-favored physically, he was in every other respect a fitting candidate for her hand. This was easier said than done, however, because virgins were closely watched by their mothers or by truculent warrior brothers. Nevertheless, one day Enda seized an opportunity when Deirdre went to fetch water from the stream at the foot of the hill. He followed her furtively darting from tree to tree until he found her stooped over the stream, singing softly to herself as the water filled her clay pitchers. Deirdre, he called timidly, 
She turned and gasped, eyes round with fright. You! What do you want? Her body tensed, and she seemed ready to bolt. I... I want to... The panic in her face alarmed him. He had expected to startle her, but had not imagined she would greet him with such revulsion. He stepped forward, hand extended pacifically. But she jumped back, misinterpreting the gesture. She stumbled, almost falling into the stream, and moved swiftly to rescue her. No, she shrieked. Get away from me, monster. She found her feet and burst into a run, crying, Help, help, he means to rape me. And his body had been deformed at birth, but not until that moment had his soul been formed. And now it was Salon, and Enda, humiliated beyond reason, stood on the perimeter of the celebrants, dancing and chanting around the bonfire. In his left hand he held a fat wineskin from which he drank often. In his right he held a foot-long butcher blade, which he used to cut the throats of pigs and chickens. His eyes were fixed bitterly on the figures of Deirdre and Kulain, whirling exuberantly around the fire to the immense approval of the tribe, for their betrothal had been announced to the joy and relief of all. And his legs shook, and his body trembled in the cold night, though the heat of the fire was intense. And when the couple pirouetted past him once more, he leapt like a wild cat on his twin prey. Unarmed, their elbows linked, they didn't have a chance. Enda's blade sliced easily through Kulin's jugular windpipe, his legs kicked out in a grotesque finale to his dance of life. Then he fell like a slaughtered bull, dragging Deidre downward. Her head turned away, she laughed, believing that her drunken partner had merely stumbled. Enda's blade caught her with laughter on her face, the same laughter that had mocked him after she had run safely into the arms of her tribesmen the day he had approached her at the stream. The highly honed weapon plunged into her breast up to the hilt. In the clamor, no one heard the explosion of wind from her lungs, the gurgle of blood, the whimper, or saw the look of dreadful recognition as the light faded from her eyes, except for Enda. The thrill of revenge was the last emotion Enda knew. For a moment later, he was literally torn apart by the enraged tribe. Only his head and his heart were preserved, gathered up after the frenzy had subsided at the request of the grieving king. After Deidre and Kulain were buried on the hallowed ground the following day, and his head and heart were carried to the summit of hill of fiends, the cowards, and other outcasts were left to rot unblessed. The king asked his shaman to pronounce a special curse of the remains of this vile murderer. Thy soul shall roam the earth to the end of time, reliving thy foul deed and thy foul punishment, and may the god Rukola visit every affliction upon thy spirit forevermore. The sky darkened, and lightning flashed. The day suddenly grew black and cold, and out of nowhere gusts of snow lashed the tribal party. In the history of the tribe, it had never snowed so early in the year. Satisfied that Mukola had heard his prayer, the shaman summoned his people to turn their backs on Enda and return to their bereft village. The celebration of Samhain's Eve was transmuted over the centuries. The invading Romans carried the tradition back from the English Isles with them in the form of the Harvest Festival of Pomona, and the early Christians deemed their celebration Hallamas. The popes of the Middle Ages consecrated November 1st as All Saints' Day, and All Hallows' Even slurred into Halloween, as the holiday was transmuted over the next millennium. With the coming of modern civilization, the superstitions and traditions of the original festival lost their meaning and vitality. Token recognition could be seen in the customs of lighting candles and jack-o'-lanterns, hanging effigies of witches and goblins outside homes, and playing good-natured pranks that were a feeble cry from the mayhem of the old times. 
children paraded about in costumes whose significance had long ago lost their correspondence to the terror of evil that had once gripped the world at the onset of winter. Halloween, like many of the holidays, had become an empty shame. Except that from time to time, the innocent frolic of all Halloween was shattered by some brutal and inexplicable crime, and the original spirit of the celebration was brought home to a horrified world. Then the people would bolt their doors. Scant good it did them, and besides, there were always the unwary.